Join me in Haggai chapter 1. Find it in your bulletin. If you can, find it in your Bible. <laughs> and let's pray. The Lord of armies, uh, you do not turn the fullness of your power against us. For we have been unfaithful. Our hearts have not loved you as they ought to. Our priorities are misshapen and guided by our own broken wills. But Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, chastising us in your grace. And may your law daily call us to holiness. And may we learn repentance. Our God, we take refuge in your covenantal promises. We believe you and we take them for ourselves and we enrobe ourselves in the righteousness of Christ. We ask now that the love of Christ would control us. Day by day, give us new and increasing affections toward you and your perfect word by the power of your spirit. For you have been with us, you are with us, and you will be with us. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Stand for the reading of God's holy word, Haggai chapter 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord of hosts, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth on man and beast and all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, 
the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. Uh, we just sang from Martin Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress, Lord Sabaoth, His Name. And maybe you're like me and you sang Lord Sabaoth for years not knowing what it means. Um, kind of like uh, what, lamb chop. That's a very specific reference. But, um, we, we sing and we maybe don't know what lo- this means, Lord Sabaoth. Uh, Sabaoth is from Hebrew. Uh, is most often translated hosts in our Bibles. But whenever I cross this phrase in the Bible, I always think of Dwight Zeller who taught me Hebrew exegesis and he would say, it should be Lord of Armies. Or better, Yahweh of Armies. Yahweh Sabayot. Our, our God is the God who commands the host of heaven and the host of his saints. I'll give away what I think is the main thrust of this passage right up front. I think we find it in verse 13. His promise, I am with you, declares the Lord. I am with you. None other than this Lord of hosts, this Yahweh of armies is with you. It's a phrase we use and it can become trite. The Lord is with you. Somebody's suffering. The Lord will be with you. But I, I think we'll find that that actually is not trite at all for, for Yahweh to say that to his people. In this passage, we get a more robust sense of what this means for the Lord of hosts to be with us. So we're kind of jumping into Haggai as an Advent series, four-part series. And so we'll just give you a little bit of background into the book of Haggai. Um, as an Advent series, Haggai might not have been the first place you would have turned um, or thought of as an Advent series, but I trust you'll see why as we go along, why I chose it. And I, it actually works out quite nicely because there's four prophecies in the book of Haggai. And uh, I probably would have broken this into two parts. The first one, if, if we weren't doing a four-part series, there's a lot here. Um, but... For these prophecies of Haggai to make sense, we have to situate them in their redemptive historical context. So uh, just recall that, that as God brought the people of Israel out of Egypt, he made a covenant with them at Sinai. And this covenant was a little bit more conditional than many of the other covenants in Scripture, that if they would be obedient, God would bless them. And if they would not, they, he, he would curse them. They would fall into cursing and ultimately exiled from the land of promise. And, of course, we know they were not faithful, but God was faithful to his promise, and they were exiled from the promised land. They were brought out from the promised land um, into Mesopotamia. The northern kingdom was exiled in in 733 B.C., uh, also called Israel. The southern kingdom, uh, Judah, was exiled in, in 586, or that was the year that the temple, Solomon's temple in Jerusalem was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and Judah was brought away into Babylon. Um, during the, the 
the time of this exile, the Mesopotamian superpower region came under uh, new management. The, the Persians ousted the Babylonians and, and uh, the, in 538, the Lord stirred up the Persian king Cyrus's heart to allow the people of Judah to go back to rebuild Jerusalem, the wall, and the temple, which we can read all about in Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, there was an, an initial re- attempt to rebuild the temple. We can read about that if you want to read this week in chapters 3 through 6 of Ezra. Um, but under the leadership of, of Ezra and Nehemiah and these men from this story, Zerubbabel, Joshua, and, and spurred on by the word of the Lord preached by primarily two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, they were, they were called upon to rebuild the temple. And eventually it was the second temple was built. Um, so our story, Haggai, picks up 18 years after Cyrus, which if you read Ezra, it seems like it all happens like right in a row. But it's 18 years later, um, after Cyrus's decree, and, and two Persian kings later, in the second year of, of Darius, in 520 BC, this is where we start. And just before they start rebuilding um, the temple and the recorded ministry of, of Haggai, the prophet. Now, as we are introduced to the, the players in the story, it's also important to understand that Persia didn't release the exiles of Judah to go back home and restart their own nation. They were still under Persian rule. They're a Persian vassal state. So when it says that Zerubbabel was the governor, he's not the king of Judah. He's a subsidiary governor under the Persian rule. Um, Zerubbabel... Uh, interestingly, means son of Babylon. Um, but he, he is the son of Shealtiel, who was the son of Jehoiachin, or Jeconiah, and uh, who, who was the king of Judah when Judah was exiled from uh, Judah into to, to, uh, Babylon. So just to summarize, Judah is returned from exile now, uh, where we are in Haggai. The temple has not yet been rebuilt. And Haggai, along with Zechariah, are the, the prophetic mouthpieces of the Lord, calling upon them to, to rebuild the temple. And God, we see in the story, is with his people through every step of this process. So that's just a little bit of background. And, and I, I, I zero in on this verse 13, that the Lord is with you, as the main idea of this passage. And I see four ways that he is with his people in this text. And the first is by identifying sin and calling for repentance. He's with his people by identifying sin and calling for repentance. Which when I say God is with you, that may not be the first thing you think of. He's pointing out my sin and calling me to repentance. But a good parent is constantly identifying sins of their children and calling them to, to repentance, to change And that's really one of the most important elements of God being with them through this time in in the illustration, parents being with their children through their lives. I'm going to guide you along the way, shepherd you through dangers, and many of those dangers are going to come from your own heart. So this is what God is doing. He's calling attention to, to persistent patterns of sin in his people. So uh, we'll read from verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, 
the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. That, that's the point of friction that they have said, now is not the time to rebuild the house of the Lord. They're, they're saying, yes, it's important, but, but now it's just, it's just not the right time. It's kind of like getting married or having kids. There's never a great time. This is not the time. Maybe when things settle out a little bit, maybe when, when the resources start to build back to, or, or when we have the resources to build the temple to its original grandeur, uh, maybe when the promised Davidic king arrives, that will be the time. I, we don't know their excuses, but they had excuses and they said, now's not the time. They're not ready to build, rebuild God's house, but they are committed to rebuilding their own lives. God calls attention to this heart condition of theirs in verse 4. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Uh, ruins may not be the best translation. Anthony uh, Pedersen says desolation might be a better um, translation because they have already at this point, early on when they came back from exile, they laid the foundations of the temple. You remember in Ezra they wept about how small it was and Zerubbabel and, and all these men who had already started and laid the foundations. Um, so it's not so much that it's ruins, but it's, it's like we see when people start a construction project and pour the slab and leave it and weeds start to come up. It's desolation. And it's been left like that. Uh, also, paneled houses. God says, you live in your paneled houses. Nobody knows... What that means. It could mean uh, more decorative, like wainscoting or something, or it could also, the word might just mean roofed, roofed houses. Clearly, in the passage, they're not wealthy at this point, so it's probably not overly ornate, but they're, they're building their houses. In verse 9, he says that this house lies in ruins while each of you builds, uh, busies himself with his own house. Um, busies himself may also better be translated runs to his own house uh, we get the sense here that there's a, a haste and urgency in these people's lives and they, they it says they've sown much they've looked for much from their labors labors everyone is busy constructing and planting and going about life and where is the haste and urgency to rebuild the house of the lord The most severe form of judgment that, that God can apply to us is simply to let us go, to let us walk our own way, um, to allow us to continue unchecked in patterns of sin. So if we see, uh, we, we see God's faithfulness and his presence, his with you-ness in the very act of mercifully bringing it up to them. You, you have wrongly ordered affections. You, you build your whole life and you're leaving the temple in desolation. You have misplaced priorities and it's not, it's not right. He doesn't just point it out. He, twice he calls them to consider your ways or literally consider your heart, um, which in, in Hebrew 
thinking the heart is the seat of the, not the emotions, but the, the will. Um, in verse 5 and 7, he says, Consider your heart. Consider your ways. Reflect on your affections and your motivations. What's driving you? And he calls them to change, to change at a heart level. So, well, correction um, feels weighty and often is unpleasant. It is then that God is, is in most often shown to be with us. He's right there with us, guiding us, protecting us from our sin. Even uh, as his children, we also regularly need more than words. I know, I know I need more than just words. Pointing out my sin. More often, we need discipline, chastisement. So the second way he's with us is in discipline. God is with us in discipline. Yahweh here, he calls their attention twice in this chapter to the struggles they've been having. He he says, think about it. The things have not been going overly smoothly for you. In verse 6, you have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. And then, and then the second description of their, their trials, we also discover why this is happening to them. In verse 9, uh, you look for much, and behold, it came to little. And you, when you brought it home, I blew it away. Now we know who's behind it. I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withered, uh, withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Um, I have a funny joke. It doesn't get very many laughs. But I think it's funny, so I keep using it. Um, which I have a right to do as a dad, a father of four, and a pastor. Bad jokes are my domain. But it, for example, if we're out fishing and I'm catching more fish than my fishing partner, I will say to them, you just must not be living right. The joke is, of course, and you know it's funny because I have to explain it. <laughs> I don't actually believe God's blessings are, are somehow dependent on my obedience. Thank the Lord, or I would be in hell right now. But, but there's a danger in reading a passage like this wrongly so that it becomes a kind of live and right sort of gospel. That my blessings are somehow directly tied to, to my obedience. Or that, that, on the converse, I must have done something really bad because God clearly hates me and all this bad stuff's been happening to me. But Jesus himself, he rejects this kind of thinking in Luke 13, 4 and 5. He, he says, Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent... You all will likewise perish. The point is that there's, it's not dependent on obedience. 
So where, where is God going with all of this? And to understand, I, th- I think we have to go back and understand that they are in the Mosaic Covenant. We have to go back to the Mosaic Covenant, which was a more conditional covenant. And I recommend if you get a chance to read uh, Deuteronomy 11 and Deuteronomy 28 this week, if you have, a, have the time. And these chapters describe the blessings that will come on the people if they are obedient and if they are faithful in the promised land and the curses that will befall them if they're not. If we compare our chapter with these two chapters, 11, Deuteronomy 11 and Deuteronomy 28, it's clear the language God is using is reflecting those chapters. God is not punishing these people from a spirit of anger, but of faithfulness. He is faithfully executing the covenant that he made with them. And they have not been faithful. So, for example, I'll just read it there sampling of both of these chapters and just hear the similarity of the language between these chapters and, and chapter 1 of Haggai. Um, Deuteronomy 11, 13 through 17, this is describing the covenant blessings. And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, he will give rain for your land in its season, the yearly rain, early rain and the latter rain, that you may gather your grain and your wine and your oil. And he will give grass in your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. Take care, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens, so that there will be no rain. And the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. You can hear there are a lot of the same language of dryness versus rain, uh, oil, these types of things. The blessings that he will provide for them if they're faithful. The curses if not. Uh, another sampling from Deuteronomy 28, uh, 38 through 40. This describes some of the covenant curses. You shall carry much seed into the field. Remember the, the language. If you've sown much, you, you will carry much seed into the field and shall gather in little, for the locust shall consume it. You shall plant vineyards and dress them, but you, sh- but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worm shall eat them. You shall have olive trees through all your territory, but you shall not anoint yourself with oil, for your olives shall drop off. So if you read the, re- the rest of these couple of chapters, you'll see that the curses that are afflicting these people, they, I'll call them post-exilic procrastinators, they're relatively mild compared to the rest of the chapters. They, they, they've already endured the full brunt of the covenant cursings while they were in exile. So to me, this, this what's going on here is almost more of a lack or withholding of the covenant blessings. It, it seems to me to be more of a chastisement, a reminder, rather than a strict curse. It's severe what's happening to them, but relative to the possibilities, something they just went through, uh, it's more of a nudge, a reminder. He's saying, don't go there again. Did you learn nothing from the exile? They're not falling into the sort of gross idolatry of their fathers, but neither are they loving the Lord their God with all their heart. 
Their attitudes and actions don't reflect what even their own psalmist says in, in Psalm 27, 4. One thing I have asked for the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. That, that heart is not there. But during seasons of uh, relative blessing and comfort and happiness, we are quick to say, the Lord is with me. How blessed I am. And in times of suffering, we'll say too, the Lord is with me in my suffering. But we should as well, likewise, uh, be quick to recognize that the difficulties themselves are the kind hand of the Lord. I, I mentioned this a, a couple of, or no, I didn't. It's a latter quote that I mentioned. But John Owen said um, that the principal business of our soul, of every soul in depths, is to endeavor deliverance. The principal business, the chief aim of the person who is in dire straits is to seek deliverance. And so when we are in need, when we're enduring sufferings, that's meant to cause us to seek deliverance and to seek deliverance from a particular person. In other words, the purpose of, of trials is often to move us to, to seek God himself for deliverance. We, we so often seek deliverance from the difficulty by seeking to overcome the difficulty, which is not wrong, but God would have us to, to turn to him, to seek him in the difficulty. And in that way, he is with us. He is with his people in discipline, in chastisement, in trials. Notice then what he says in 7 and 8. He doesn't say, build the temple so that these difficulties will stop. He says in 7, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house. Why? That I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified says the Lord. So the third way that he is with us is by directing us to himself. Directing our hearts to God. An interesting question. Is God a legalist? Why is he so concerned with the rebuilding of this temple, this structure? I mean, after Paul says, he does not dwell in temples made with hands. Isaiah 66, 1 says, this is what the Lord says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? Or where will my uh, place of repose be? And in 1 Kings 8, when Solomon prays the prayer of dedication for the temple, he says, but will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I that you have built, that I have built. So why is God so focused on this building, the temple? A few reasons to consider. Uh, first, this is how God has chosen in this time and place, or that time and place, to, to be worshipped. Means are not in, inconsequential, especially when God has chosen those means. How God has asked and, and called us to worship him 
is how we need to worship. Uh, we, people make this logical error frequently. Uh, a true statement, God doesn't dwell in temples. A false conclusion, I can worship how I see fit. But the real question we should be asking is not how God might be hypothetically worshipped, but how God has actually told us to worship him. So he tells them, go to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified. This is how he wants to be glorified and worshipped. Second reason why he's focused on this structure of the temple is that the rebuilding of the temple was prophesied to be part of the restoration of Zion after exile. In other words, the prophets had proclaimed to the people um, in exile that they would, they would return and that the temple would be restored. Isaiah 2, verse 2, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. In Isaiah 44:28, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple, your foundations shall be laid. So this is a, an important part in God's providence of, of the restoration of the people from exile. A third reason why he, he, he may be focused on the temple is that the temple represented the presence of God with his people. It's interesting. Nebuchadnezzar tore down Solomon's temple in 586 BC. Uh, the people then were brutalized and carried off, just as God said would happen if they were unfaithful. And it was a real sort of Ichabod moment that the glory of God has departed, that the temple is destroyed, people are in exile. But God promised that this would be temporary. Through the prophet Jeremiah, he promised the 70-year exile. So the year now, when, when, in this prophecy, is 520, 66 years after the destruction of the temple. And care to guess how long it took to finish the second temple? Four years. 516, 70 years from destruction to, to rebuilding. So in God's mind, it seems to me that exile is less about how long the people spent away from the, the promised land and more about how long his face was turned away from them. The temple represents the, the presence of Yahweh on Mount Zion. That, that he, he is present with his people for worship, for atonement and care, and also that the Lord of armies is declaring to the nations by the presence on the holy mountain that he is with his people. So that the attitude of the people Yes, the, the temple, wouldn't it be great if we could rebuild it? it that, that attitude is missing the significance of the temple, the importance of the temple. And God is with them in that he is bringing a corrective and reorienting them to his delight in all that the temple represents to him. He, he's with them and with us by redirecting our hearts toward him. Finally, he's with us to 
bring about the, the obedience of faith. So it's the fourth point, that he, he's with us by affecting obedience in us. By affecting obedience. Um, first, here he, he affects a heart-level repentance by the preaching of the Word. This is how he accomplishes this. This is how he moves us to obedience, by the preaching of the Word. Verse 12 then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. They listened to, listened to the voice of their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, the mouthpiece of the Lord, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. It seems that the root of their sin was that they did not have a proper holy reverence and fear for Yahweh of armies, whom here Haggai calls Yahweh their God. That's covenantal language. That's echoing the covenant promise. I will be your God and you will be my people. Despite their failures, Yahweh their God. The reason they stopped building uh, the temple and the foundations of the temple um, after They started building two years into their return. The reason they stopped was opposition from the locals. So that the fear of man was larger than the fear of the Lord. But here it says that God affected that heart change through the preaching of the word that now Zerubbabel, Joshua, and all the remnant of the people feared the Lord their God. So the power of the preaching of the word to affect obedience. But the word will not have impact on us without the movement of the Holy Spirit working on our hearts. Uh, I quoted a few weeks ago from Owen who said, without the Holy Spirit, we may as well burn our Bibles. It means nothing if, if the Holy Spirit doesn't enliven us to the word of God. And this is what God does for them here. In verse 14, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the remnant of all of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, on the second year of Darius the king. And this work of God in their hearts um, draws our attention back then to verse 13. Uh, and I believe everything in this chapter converges on verse 13. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. Uh, he offers a, a little bit more robust version of this same truth in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. He says, work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. That's how God is with them, by, by the power of the Holy Spirit in their midst. Um, God speaks the same kind of word to Zerubbabel through Zechariah, a Haggai's companion prophet in Zechariah 4, um, 6 through 10. And this is really a powerful prophecy and statement about Zerubbabel that he said to me this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel not by might nor by power 
but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? You shall become plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. So, despite really their best efforts to, to stop working on the temple, God is with them by effecting obedience in them by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's moving them to repentance and action by His own power. He started the good work and He'll bring it to completion. So though the Lord of armies has exercised covenant faithfulness against his people in this passage, the Lord of armies is also with his people. And we see not not just after they repent, he's with them, but in calling them to repentance, in disciplining them, in directing them to their highest priority, and in leading them to, to a posture of reverent obedience, he is with them. And he, he will be continued to be with them, we'll see, as they proceed to construct the temple. Now, some of us may be left with the lingering question, what does all this have to do with Advent? Because this is supposed to be an Advent series. Um, and how does this fit into our anticipation of the celebration of the incarnation of, of Christ in this Christmas season? And I would say it has everything to do with Advent. Because without the Advent of Christ, none of this means anything. This is crusty old history of some vain religion without the arrival of the incarnate Christ. This, this refrain of God from this, this chapter in verse 13, I will be with you, is one that echoes throughout the scriptures, but we know it comes to its fullest expression in a manner of fullness that I don't think Haggai or Zechariah or Zerubbabel or Joshua could have fully conceived or imagined, I will be with you, comes in the form of Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus took on flesh and tabernacled among us, that, that the covenant curses of the law he bore for us on the tree, that the, the covenant blessings from Deuteronomy 28 and, and, uh, and 11, he granted us by faith every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And that the true and final temple, the temple of his flesh, was torn down. And he did not delay, but in three days he built it back up. To stand as, as the perpetual presence of God with us. So he is with us as he calls us from sin and leads us by his spirit into the fullness of the presence of God. Amen.